0: Nice to meet you, too. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be on air. Thank you. I just wanted to start off. Recently, there has been a lot of uh, research that has resulted in the publication of many books and scholars based on the Sikh Empire. And I just wanted to ask you what really inspired you to take on this subject and what was
1: different in your approach? Oh, um, well, there have been a lot of great books published in this area. Mm-hmm. and. I must admit, one of them that inspired me when I was an undergraduate student was, was one Singh's Empire of the Sea, mm-hmm. which some of your listeners may have read before. And I, I first picked that up when I was an undergraduate student. Um, but what I wanted to do with my book, with my research, um, was really kind of grow on my own interest, really on on the women of the empire, starting with Maharani Jindagore, who was the last queen, the last Maharani of this of this, this what we today know as the Sikh Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, the last wife of Maharaja Ranjit Singh who was the founder of that kingdom um, and essentially you know I, I, I worked on this research as a PhD student predominantly and I was fascinated by the story of the last Maharani she she actually fought against the British um, in the 1840s to defend the independence of her son Dilip Singh's kingdom where well, he was just five when he came to the throne at Lahore um, as, as of course Punjab at that point was not divided between two countries india and pakistan it was its own sovereign kingdom
0: mm-hmm.
1: um but when i started digging into maharani Kaur's story and the women around her and within her family it was amazing it just kind of blew my mind Ranjit singh for example this this great legendary figure in punjabi history um actually had 30 wives and was also heavily dependent on his mother his mother-in-law before him, grandmothers, aunts, uncles, all sorts of people to, to establish this dynasty. And so when I kind of scratched the surface of that story and I look back on all the biographies and the things that I've read, I was like, you know, this part of that kingdom and its, in its dynasty and its story has yet to be told. So my book is a, trying to get some of that information out there, I guess.
0: Yeah, and that's amazing. I feel like no one's really like taken on that, that subject, and I think it's c- incredible that you're doing that as well. And that kind of ties into the other question. So as you mentioned, Maharaja Ranjit Singh had so many other queens, and like a lot of people mainly recognize Maharani Jindkor, uh, or as yep. well as uh, Bamba Dalip Singh, who was um, Dalip Singh's wife. I feel like a lot of that's people... That's right, yeah. Yeah, so I just wanted to <laughs> ask... Um, like, can you shed some light on how these queens may, who have been mainly unknown throughout history, and how, like, how did they play an influential role within the Lahore Darbar?
1: The wow! So definitely, maybe we can get right into it. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> it was it was huge. I mean, it's it's it was fascinating to me. It's funny because in the histories of that time, mm-hmm. it's interesting that. They are the, the women aren't talked about as much as the men. Mm-hmm. They're often kind of mentioned behind this kind of Persianate phrase of behind the lady behind the veil of chastity. So these were very elite women. They were maintained further. They wore veils or uh, sat behind a curtain in public company. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that behind that curtain or behind that dupatta or junni or whatever you want to say it, they weren't up to a lot. Um, I mean, we tend to exceptionalize Jindgore, actually, the last Maharani, the rebel queen, as she's popularly mm-hmm. known, mm-hmm. Or, or Bamba later on, I guess you could say, too, or even Princess Sophia Dilip Singh. I don't know how much her story has been told
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, in Canada, but the suffragette princess, Dilip Singh's daughter. Yeah, of course. But actually, you know what? There were generations of these women who, as I show in the book, um, you know, from Ranjit Singh's mother-in-law, sadakwar who was a sardarni, you know, like a, um, mm-hmm. a noble lady, essentially, who was also a warrior who led her own troops in, the, in what was known as the missile, the warrior bands of the day, to support Ranjit Singh in conquering the capital of Lahore. A thing that's very rarely mentioned actually, one of the glorious moments of his reign, when he captures the former Mughal capital of Lahore, actually he potentially could have lost it if his mother-in-law hadn't been there to kind of add a diplomatic stance to it all. And then there's his second wife, mine again, who um, ran her own fort, who trained the heir to the throne, Gorak Singh, Ranjit Singh's first son, Mm -hmm. to be a good prince, you know, to help him in some of his military campaigns. And who was also, like Sadhakur, supplying soldiers and and resources and and acting as a landowner herself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by the time you get to Jindgore, you know, who comes to the throne in in 1843 with the link, you actually realise that. Okay. Okay. Yes, yeah, she was incredible. She was formidable, and she had to deal with really challenging circumstances because by that point, you know, the the Sikh Empire was facing real risk of invasion from the East India Company. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it wasn't an exception to the rule to have a woman in a position of power in the Punjab at that time. And so, I started off with Jinko's story, and then I went backwards and ended up with this whole new way of looking at the rise and fall of the Sikh empire as a result. If you insert the women back in the story, essentially what I try to argue in the book, you get a whole revitalized, completely changed understanding of the political culture of that time. And that's what we've been missing for so long. Wow, and and I think
0: that's incredible, and and just <laughs> and I just wanted to ask, like, how does it feel, like, knowing that your book about sick history, especially women in sick history, was so well pre- received in Western media outlets,
1: such as like the Washington Post and such. Oh my God, it, yeah. it's meant the world. I mean, I, I'm finding it really hard to put it into words at the moment, but I'm I'm really proud. I'm really touched. I feel so lucky. I mean, look, we're in the most difficult times that our generation have been in right now with the pandemic and with, you know, all sorts of global politics being really messed up and and jobs. I mean, I, I was made redundant from my job as a lecturer earlier this year because, because of the impact of the pandemic. Yeah. But the book has been a, it was something that I've been working on for, for years now as a, as a student and now obviously as an academic. And to get that reception and to get that love and, and people be so enthusiastic about wanting to learn more about their history it's a dream come true like it was it was a lonely process you know when you're mm-hmm. in the library as a PhD student doing all that research and um, you know and I I was always kind of led to believe that oh it might be a bit of a niche topic you know Sikh history is not a big thing and blah 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 but actually you know people have gotten behind it not just not just um, Sikhs and Punjabis but um, you know All sorts of people. Like Mm -hmm. you said, the Washington Post and and the Wall Street Journal most recently. And it's just been amazing. (laughs) So I'm really thankful.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's amazing. And I applaud you for that. And I just also wanted to ask you about the title of the book, because it's Royals and Rebels. And it's very enticing. When I first saw it, I was like, this is completely amazing. I look, I've looked at previous sick history books, and they're like, oh, the first Anglo-Sikh war, and they're just very straightforward. And I think this is a very interesting and enticing title. And I just wanted to ask you, what made you choose this? Because I know, as you mentioned earlier on, too, that Maharani Jintgore was referred to as the Rebel Queen. Did you find that yes. as an inspiration as well?
1: Yes, you're on to me there. Um, <laughs> no, but thank you. Thank you for the support, first of all, yourself. And I was really chuffed when you got in touch and, and that everyone in Canada is being so kind about it. I mean, it's just come out yesterday in Canada um, officially um, so people can get their hands on the book for Oxford University Press or local local bookstores, hopefully. But in terms of the title, it was, it was difficult to think about. I'm not the best with pithy, coming up with pithy short liners <laughs> or whatever. And the title was hard. So how do you capture this, right? Mm-hmm. But no, Rebel Queen was definitely in the back of my mind. I think, and I, I mean, it, when anyone picks it up and, and has a chance to read, I talk about in the first chapter in particular, I try to kind of ground ideas of Sikh kingship within Sikh philosophy and Punjabi philosophy about rulership. Mm-hmm. And and in that I talk about how actually the gurus were quite subversive and rebellious, but also adaptive of kind of Indo-Persian Mughal ideas of royalty and how they adapt and absorb them and and make them something new and and if anything that is the cultural context in which Ranjit Singh arises, and so that's what I try to say that you know in a way all Sikhs were kind of rebels at that time, mm-hmm. but then the the idea of who's will, who's rebel is continually shifting throughout the book but essentially that they're both quite <laughs> quite the way through mm-hmm. um but also it was a fun title i guess so yeah. simply that too <laughs>
0: <laughs> no i love it <laughs> like researching for this book as you mentioned as well how you started off with marani Jintkor and then came across to like the stories of like all the other queens and stuff and i yeah. just wanted to <laughs> ask you so what did you learn or what's some something that struck you that while writing this book that you like didn't know before and thought was interesting
1: oh my god so many things yeah. i mean i think <laughs> it's been i'll be completely honest um and i talk about this again at the start of the book in my acknowledgements i was 18 or 19 when i first heard the story and i'm a, i'm from a sick uh family myself I've, obviously you can hear i've grown up in britain um but I didn't know that a Sikh em- a empire even existed mm-hmm. as when I was growing up and I, I was always fascinated with history um, but I wasn't aware that this kingdom had existed that people like Rani Jindagora had existed and I went to this talk at university uh, that my friends organized with the Sikh society and um, I was blown away and it was a talk about the One Singh's book Empire of the Sikhs and I was totally blown away and I was totally moved by Jennifer's story so that that was the first thing Mm -hmm. and then ever since then, you know, it just kind of created this massive curiosity in me to find out more and I I was lucky I did my undergraduate thesis on it and then later on my PhD thesis and obviously now I've turned it into a book but it's just been a continual process of discovery Mm -hmm. and You know, one, just understanding the dynamics of that kingdom, but then now, of course, starting to unpick the myths, which is what I really focus on in the the book, to say, you know, all these myths about Maharaja Ranjit Singh as the of Punjab, the Lion of Punjab, the great man, and then around the women and and his successor, princes. um, I think you might, anyone who picks the book up and reads it, I think you will find a lot of surprises in there. I also don't give all the answers. I don't claim to be able to answer everybody's questions about this. And to some degree, I don't know if we ever will. History will always have an element of mystery because it's in the past. And we can't we can't access, we can't be there. We can't get in a time machine and find out what definitely happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just the process of bringing the stories of the princes and the women back into the picture and putting Ranjit Singh almost in context, I learned so much from that, and I think when you when you look at the family dynamics as a whole of, of that dynasty, and the way that they operated to build this kingdom from scratch within the Punjab, building on the legacies of the gurus and the Missiles and Bandar Singh Bahadur and all these important figures within Sikh history, um, but doing all these creative things, there were so many surprises. I mean. From prominent queens like mine again, who I mentioned, who had her own fort and was, you know, helping her son, to Prince Godik Singh, who was the first um, person to succeed Ranjit Singh as Maharaja, who we tend to think of as an imbecile because that's what he was mentioned about uh, as um, in British historiography, British colonial writings of that time. Actually, you know, he he commissioned this incredible Sanskrit manuscript on astronomy, which is today in the British Library. Mm-hmm. And so I've included pictures from that book in in my book, and I've tried to discuss some of the history around it and and Anyway, when you start looking at this stuff, it just turns everyone's i guess preconceptions about who the Sikhs were, what the Punjab was like at that time, what that kingdom was like, just turns it all on its head, mm-hmm. and it really it makes you realize that this was such a rich, ambitious, creative environment basically to to be running a kingdom in and um I want people to have that. I want people to know that we had this rich cultural, intellectual heritage. And so I I don't, you know, some people told me sometimes the book can be a bit, you have to really sit with it and think about it. And there's a lot to take in. But what I'm really pleased is that people are taking it on board. And I'm really glad that there are all the paintings and things in there. So you can kind of, I would love for people to be able to immerse themselves in that world and, and realize that you know, our history is so deep and so rich, and we've got and this is just the beginning. There's so I really hope that more people listening to this or reading mm-hmm. today will be inspired to go and do more research. There's so much, there's so much more to learn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: And that kind of ties into my other question is that as you touched base like y- before you kind of learned about it you had no idea like the vastness of the the, Lahore, the Bar Darbar even like Sikh history and i feel like that's the same for a lot of a lot of Sikhs not even not even just second generation but just like the whole community like as mm. well and i just wanted to ask like what's one takeaway that you hope that young Sikhs or just Sikhs in general would gather from reading this book
1: ooh um <laughs> I think if there was one thing in general, it would be, you know what, we have, we have to look at our history in all of its entirety, okay, and I think we have to ask ourselves why has the history of women in particular been forgotten for so long or overlooked for so long, Um, but what do we stand to gain essentially, and I think it's a lot from from looking at our history in all of its messiness in all of its complexity but also all of its sheer you know fascination to be quite honest I mean by 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 thinking about the human dimensions of all of this by looking at Ranjit Singh as a man who was an interesting figure rather than as some kind of romanticized hero we stand to gain a lot more and I think especially with the younger generation today we're so educated now we're so questioning and curious about our history and our and our place in the world I think we're at a really good moment for for more and more young six to go into research, to go into questioning and exploring and that kind of thing. And, and so that's two things, basically. Sorry, cheeky. Um, <laughs> one, our history is so rich and it's worth looking at it in its, all its messy glory. But secondly, too, please go ahead and do some more research because there's so much more yet to be found. I
0: think that your book just like is the beginning of that as well. And I think that it's amazing. Um, also, co- kind of going back to like what you mentioned before, like you said, it's like the book covers the family dynamics of of yeah. of the fa- of the family. So I just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to specifically talk a little bit more about the princess because I feel like everyone mm-hmm. knows about the Singh and his struggles yeah. coming into England and like as well as his as his children's, but I feel like the rest of Maharaja Rajit Singh's seven sons, I believe, I feel like a lot of them are so forgotten about and I feel like their lives were really tragic as well. Can you tell us just a little bit more about them as
1: well, perhaps? Yeah, so I was quickly counting on fingers just to make sure I've got the right number. There were <laughs> seven in total, including Delip Singh. Yeah. Yeah. And then as in there be the, they're his Ranjit Singh's sons. Um and then of course there's grandchildren as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember how many of those there are, to be quite honest, but in in the book, I provide a full list of the first generation of princes and their wives and dependents. So you can, um, in, in, in the appendices in the back of the book, so you've got the whole list of that family. Mm-hmm. Um, it was too complicated, actually, <laughs> to design a family tree, yeah. <laughs> funnily enough, because of the sheer number of wives that Ranjit had. Thirty of his own right, and then of course the children. Um, the princes tend to get a bad rep, to be quite honest, in all of the written historiography, the, hist- the, the kind of um, existing history writing essentially on on the Sikh Raj and the Sikh Empire. The um, blame for the fall tends to go on the princes who were Ranjit Singh's heirs, and of course on the British. Um, I think I would hate a little bit more on the British, mm-hmm. because what's interesting is, and what I what I really unpack quite de- in a detailed way in the book is, you know, for the period after Ranjit Singh dies, there's a te- decade. 1839 is when he dies. 1849 is when the Punjab is taken over by the company. Um, that period, of course, is when Ranjit Singh's sons take over. And but what's interesting about that period, when you go to the original sources. And the history that we've got left um, the vast majority of documents suddenly there's a shift towards a greater preponderance of British colonial sources and although you've got really rich actually still Punjabi Persian material there isn't as much in abundance as there is for say Ranjit Singh's period so and and what's interesting about that British colonial period and that that writing is that they increasingly write very negatively about Ranjit Singh's successes and we have not critically interrogated some of those claims and those biases enough. Um, really, really venerable and respected historians like Kushwant Singh, for example, who've written amazing stuff on Ranjit Singh mm-hmm. and really gone into a lot of depth. They just didn't give the same time, I think, and it's, it's, I don't know why, mm-hmm. they just were quite ready to accept that Ranjit Singh was the man and no one could equal him, but Essentially, you know, what I found with my research on Ranjit Singh's period was, okay, you know, his sons and his wives and his other family members were really important to help him build the Raj that he built. And so it begs the question, well, hang on, if they were doing all that in his lifetime, how did they suddenly do so badly after he died? Well, it doesn't entirely make sense, to be quite honest with you. And I think there is an over tendency of negative bias in the British colonial sources about that period and about those princes when they take over and the reason being is because there becomes an increasing political heat to take over or, or to conquer you know take over at least a part of the sick the the empire mm-hmm. um after Ranjit Singh dies that he Ranjit Singh was very keen for his heirs to build a strong relationship with the British mm-hmm. and again I, I look at why that is the case in the book but in the end it's clear after he dies that the senior kind of officials within the East India Company do not have the same level of respect for his heirs as they did for him so they're much more willing to try to deal them a dirty hand if you you see what I mean after he's gone Mm -hmm. and it's all quite complicated but I mean for example Prince Skarak Singh the eldest son or Prince Shir Singh who was known most likely not to have been fathered by Ranjit Singh but was nevertheless recognized as a prince he was born to Ranjit Singh's first wife or potentially adopted by her. They were going out and they were being told to conquer forts and, and do handle administrative duties and diplomatic duties from the age of six or seven. Like literally building a kingdom in, in the name of their father from such a young age. And you just think, gosh, that's so much pressure to put on the shoulders of young little boys. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and together with their mothers and, and that kind of stuff. So I really try to bring all that to light in the book and say, well, you know, this was a, this was a it was a family business. Running running yeah. the sick rod was a family business, and we have to appreciate that. You see what I mean?
0: Yeah, of course. And I and I think it's it's amazing that you do cover that in your book and you're taking you're looking outside of that negative perspective, which like you mentioned, many historians just like believe and don't do extensive research on that they just automatically assume that and yeah yeah. um I just wanted to kind of talk about this as well as you kind of mentioned that in 1839 Ranjit Singh died and in 1849 just in within 10 years the entire the vast kingdom from Afghanistan to Tibet just fell like that and I and I wanted to ask um do you believe that the British waited for Ranjit Singh's death before taking the step to into like invading Punjab or like the the Lahore Darbar? Because as you said, that like do you think that they th- saw the princess as like
1: incapable or or what do you believe? I should be clear about what I say with with the impact of British colonial politics. Um, it was never inevitable, and I, I make this case in the in the book that it was never inevitable. that the Sikh Empire was going to fall and and that was not only because of the way in which the political culture within the Punjab worked and how it evolved but also because crucially British elite political elites in India themselves were divided about what to do over the Punjab and there was as I as I mentioned to you just now there was increasing heat and increasing clamour to take over but it's not to say that everybody was on board but what was increasingly apparent in the 1840s because of the the growing lack of respect for Ranjit Singh's successes was the fact that the British felt entitled to intervene and to push their way into the Punjab and to meddle essentially Um, even if they weren't necessarily going to take over the whole kingdom they wanted to be able to meddle and they felt that they had a right to and that was not only because of you know their relationship with the Punjab immediately but it was also just because of the way that British politics across South Asia was evolving at that time. The East India Company and the and Maharaja and Ranjit Singh's Kingdom were pretty much equal, toe for toe, all the way through much of the early 19th century. But in that period of time, by the 1840s, the British have also conquered a massive chunk of the rest of India by that time they've also gone to war in Afghanistan they lost the first time but then they win the second time and they win very aggressively they've taken over all sorts of regioning states around the Punjab so Sindh for example which is of course also part of Pakistan today as well as the western half of Punjab um, and, and there's this this is increasingly annexationist aggressive mode coming into play and so when you look at how things heat up I guess in in that sort of northern Indian subcontinental region um by the time that say Gore and Singh come on the throne not only do they have to battle internal politics within the Punjab where it becomes increasingly anti-female and misogynist mm-hmm. um but also within the subcontinent as a whole the East India company is a much more dangerous force to be reckoned with and it's a different Different political balance from when Ranjit Singh is coming in, right? They were the, the East India Company was not quite as powerful. So what you end up happen, what you end up seeing is, okay, after the after the first Anglo Sikh War, um, the British take over half of the Punjab. If anything, the first partition of Punjab happens in 1846, not in 1947. Um, Jalandhar and Gobind and all of that eastern half of Punjab is taken over by the company and added to British India and the rest is left under Jindgore and the Singh. But they have a really hard task to kind of keep the British out. And this resident Henry Lawrence is imposed upon them and he wants to keep the Punjab independent. He wants to keep the Leep Singh on the throne, but he also has these grand ideas about how he can reform Punjabi royal culture, how he can reform the monarchy and make it this idealized state. Now he, he thinks he's an expert on Indian history, but it's rubbish that he's got all these crazy Orientalists romanticized, weird ideas about what Indian kingdoms were and how they worked and all this kind of stuff. And he totally hates women. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want Jinsgore in power, but of course, as I've just told you throughout the course of this interview, there was so much tradition, so much precedent for the role of women mm-hmm. that we have forgotten about, but that people at the time certainly knew for a guy like Lawrence to come in and try and call the shots then and, and to actually kick out from her from her home, from her kingdom was a massive thing right Mm -hmm. so even if even if the british weren't immediately going to take it over they really destabilized it by these political changes that they brought in in the 1840s coupled with as i as i said that disrespect for Ranjit Singh's successors there's a whole messy thing basically but it's funny even in even when the rebellion breaks out in the second anglo War, 1848-49 Henry Lawrence is still the one saying, Don't take over the Punjab, leave it be you know, leave all the Sardars and Ranje and the deep in post. Um which is ironic, I guess, but he's so messed it up himself that there's no, there's no room left to play with, and sadly, the, the kingdom loses its independence.
0: I just wanted to ask you one last question. So you True. said that you spent a long time developing this book and and having it, doing all the research and stuff. And I just wanted to ask, what's next for you? Do you have any <laughs> other plans after this to release perhaps new books or anything like that?
1: Well, um, I didn't know <laughs> going into this time what I was going to be doing, especially with the lockdown and stuff. Like I told you, everything went crazy with my own job and, and things like that. But the reception that the, this book has had has really just uh, it's done wonders for my confidence <laughs> and um, it's made me think that, yeah, I, I will, I will write more stuff. I mean, I still, this, this book is based on the first half of my PhD findings. I've still got the second half to go. And you mentioned the Leapsing several times, I think. I mean, I, I can't, I'm not going to commit to anything, <laughs> but I'm, I'm thinking next of doing something on The Leap mm-hmm. Um, Maybe a biography or something like that, but I've just got to find the time and the right publishers and the right support to get the research done so that I can make it happen. Um, but I'd like to think about it again in terms of questions about monarchy and empire and migration. You know, he was the first big settler in the UK from such an elite background and, um, his is a really moving story. And again, like I've tried to reevaluate the story of the rest of his family in that earlier period, I think he deserves another closer study and a retelling. So we'll see, I think that's the next thing. But for yeah. now, I just hope people enjoy the current book. <laughs> oh, of course, I, I'm very
0: sure everyone. everyone's so excited about this and I'm, and I'm so excited for this as well. I just ordered it as well and I'm very looking forward to receiving the book. <laughs>
1: No, thank you yeah. so much. I I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, but I really I really commend
0: you for this because I feel like, you. as you like you being like a sick woman focusing on this and at your level as well, I think is just really inspiring to other sick women and just like women in general. Because
1: I, I don't know, I yeah, just thank you yeah, absolutely. No, I'm really trapped to hear that. I, and that's that's a dream. If more more of our girls start writing books and and feeling like that they can see themselves in those stories and that they can be empowered by it, then that's just, yeah, it makes me emotional to think about, but I'm, I'd be really happy if that happened. I genuinely would.
0: Yeah, and it,
1: it is happening. So so thank you so <laughs> much for starting this for us. Brilliant. No, thank you. Thanks for having me on and thanks for, you know, sharing all this love all the way from Canada. It's just so nice. <laughs> no, of so course. Nice.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. It was amazing talking to you and I hope you have an amazing Day. No, night. It's night. It's night, night yeah. Dinner, yeah. dinner
1: time for us now? It's rookie time for Oh me. yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> of
0: course.